Welcome to Potomac Hills. My name is Frank Wong, and I'm one of the pastors here. And since we're online instead of in person, I want to first say thank you. Thank you for watching. Thank you for your graciousness as your leadership, the session and your pastors make decisions in this difficult time. As we've seen throughout the pandemic, we have a wide range of opinions represented in the church. That means that whatever your elders decide, somebody disagrees. And yet here we are worshiping together, even if it is virtually. So praise God that he has broken down dividing walls of differences, of hostility through the blood of his son. Now, if you're new, we've just started a series on the book of Deuteronomy. That's in the Old Testament, so toward the front of your Bible. And since our passage this morning is all of chapter 2 and 11 verses of chapter 3, I'll be, highlight, I'll be hitting highlights to work us through all the text. After church, I encourage you to read the whole thing or to pause it right now and read it now so that you can uh, know what, what happens in our passage today. You know, as we read the whole thing in its entirety, it really drives home just how much the Lord is in control. But before we jump in, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for these, uh, these words in your, in your Bible. Lord, thank you for uh, this story of your people wandering and coming uh, through the desert to just about entering into the promised land. Lord, thank you for the way in which it shows us your faithfulness, your power, your authority. But most of all, thank you that it shows us that you are with us every step of the way in grace because we don't deserve it. Lord, bless us as we look upon your word. Uh, fill us with your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. And I can't help but think about the context in which Deuteronomy was written. The Israelites were on the eastern shore of the Promised Land, once again preparing to wage a war of conquest and judgment. They're, no, they're there knowing that the odds are stacked against them. It must have seemed to be an impossible task. I mean, the people of the land were bigger, they were taller, and they were stronger. Their cities were huge with massive walls, making them difficult to besiege and overcome. Their weapons were more advanced, and they really had every military advantage uh, going their way. More and better equipped troops, better knowledge of the terrain, and they're fighting for their very homes, for their loved ones. And these conditions make it seem from an earthly perspective that the Israelites were staring death in the face. It's understandable from an earthly perspective to see why the previous generation were fearful and cowardly. And it's here on the eve of battle that you expect a rousing and encouraging speech from your commander, something along the lines of Aragorn's speech at the Black Gate of uh, Mordor with a massive host of orcs surrounding the pitifully small uh, alliance of men. Something like, Sons of Gondor, of Rohan, my brothers, I see in your eyes the same fear that would take the heart of me. A day may come when the courage of men fails, when we forsake our friends and break all bonds of fellowship, but it is not this day. An hour of wolves and shattered shields when the age of men comes crashing down, but it is not this day. This day we fight. 
By all that you hold dear on this good earth, I bid you stand, men of the West. Rousing, isn't it? But to what does Aragorn appeal? Not much, really. Just that they'll fight for their loved ones and really blind optimism. But that doesn't really change the odds. Aragorn doesn't actually have much hope. He simply wants to go down swinging, hopefully buying Frodo enough time to win the war by destroying the ring. But it's an outside chance at that. And really, Deuteronomy is Moses' speech at the Black Gate. It's his speech to the Israelites to prepare them for what looks like a hopeless task. But Moses isn't just resigned to go down swinging. No, he's confident and secure that God will fulfill his promises to bring them victory and possession of the land. And so as he's talking to them by the Jordan, he reminds them that they've been here before. Their parents stood at the cusp of the promised land and they failed to trust the Lord. The past 40 years in the desert made that abundantly clear. So here they are again with the same hopeless task before them. The real question is, will this generation react the same way? But Moses' point here in chapters 2 and 3 is to point out that it really doesn't actually take a lot of trust if the one you're trusting in has already done the exact same thing in the past. If you know that he's done it already, the odds really don't look so daunting. Why? Because he's already done it. It's like saying, well, if he's done it before, he can do it again. So Moses wanted to point them to their history. Sure, he could have pointed to the mighty works of God to lead them out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, but he didn't. Rather, he gives them a a history lesson from distant past. And then he reminds them that they've already tasted victory given by God in their recent battles with Sihon and Og. So as we walk with the Israelites from their failure at Kadesh uh, 40 years prior toward the Red Sea, and then back up again north past Edom and Moab, we're going to see the Lord give testimony to his authority and power over the nations of the earth, both both in the distant past and recently. So let's look at the distant past first. Read with me starting in verse 3. You have been traveling around this mountain country long enough. Turn northward and command the people. You are about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir, and they will be afraid of you. So be very careful. Do not contend with them, for I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as the sole of the foot to tread on, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. Then jumping down to verse 8. And we turned and went in the direction of the wilderness of Moab. And the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession, because I have given heir to the people of Lot for a possession. The Amin formerly lived there, a people great and many and tall as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they also were counted as Rephaim, but the Moabites called them Amin. The Horites also lived in Seir formerly, but the people of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed from before them uh, and settled in their place as Israel did to the land of their possession, which God gave to them. Now rise up and go over the brook Zered. So we went over the brook Zered, and the time from our leaving Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook Zered was 38 years until the entire generation, that is the men of war, had perished from the camp as the Lord 
had sworn to them. For indeed the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the camp until they had perished. So the Israelites also passed by Ammon too, a little later in the, in the chapter, because the Lord had given to the sons of Lot for uh, given it to the sons of Lot for possession too. And I think we should pay attention to two things here. First, that God is the one that has the authority over the land. He is the one to give possession and to dispossess those living there. That phrase, I will not give to you blank for a possession because I have given blank to whoever for a possession, keeps coming up. The repetition really drives the point home. When God wanted to give land to Lot and his family or Esau and his family or whoever and his family, he simply does. It didn't really matter who lived there. And as we learned in Joshua last year, it didn't matter how big or bad the army was on the, other, on the opposite side. If you have God, you win. Pretty straightforward. But the who lived there before is still important and really central to Moses' argument. Look at verses 10 through 12 and verses 20 through 23. In these historical asides, we get the stories of the Moabites and Ammonites coming into possession of the land. And what did they do? They dispossessed the Emim, the Horites, the Zamzumim, the Avim, and the Kaphatorim. It's a bunch of strange names, but these names are important in that the Emim and the Zamzumim were considered Rephaim. Now, who cares? Well, Moses does because the Anakim were Rephaim too. Did you catch the reference to the Anakim in verses 11 and 21. Now, let's go back to um, Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, back when they came to the promised land the first time. In those verses, it says, And you murmured in, the, in your tents and said, Because the Lord hated us, he brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying, The people are greater and taller than we. The cities are, were, are great and fortified up to the heavens. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. Do you see how the sons of the Anakim play a role in the intimidation of the Israelites? These Amim and Zamzumim were just like the Anakim, tall and powerful. And yet, the distant relatives of the Israelites utterly destroyed them. And so what was God saying to the Israelites as they walked past Edom and Moab? He was saying, look closely. These people who were just like you, are related to you, are here because I put them there. They overcame the same people that you now face, and they absolutely crushed them because I was with them, just as I am with you now. And so their journey northward is a sort of tour of God's handiwork, a living testimony to the authority and power of God. But God wasn't content with this simple tour and a history lesson. He wanted them to have firsthand knowledge of what it was, to, what it was going to be like while on a campaign of conquest with him, which brings us to recent history. And so when we come to uh, chapter 2, verse 24, all the way to the end of our passage, which is chapter 3, verse 11, the style of the account hopefully seems familiar to you if you've been here for a little while. 
It's like being in the book of Joshua all over again, which we were in last spring. And basically, God told Moses to go and destroy King Sihon and King Og because he had given them over to the Israelites for destruction. And he did. Now, these accounts about the destruction of these two kings were important for a couple of reasons. First, that Sihon and Og were both Amorites. And the destruction of the Amorites was only to happen when their iniquity was complete. And their destruction would herald the inheritance of the land that was promised to Abraham. Way back in Genesis 15, when Abraham was promised the land initially, God told him that his line wouldn't get it until the Amorites, those were the inhabitants of the land at the time, when their sin was full, when they had completely filled up all of the sin that God was going to allow them to sin. Now, now it's complete. And so God is faithful to his promise in two ways. First, the promised judgment and destruction of the sinful and wicked Canaanites or the Amorites and the giving of the land to the Israelites. That's the second one. Sound like the distant history of the Edomites and the Moabites? Again, God is giving land as a possession and nothing stands in his way of giving that land. But the second thing that Moses made very clear is that the cities were well defended. Did you catch that in chapter 3, verse 5? All these cities were fortified with high walls, gates, and bars, and they never lost. Do you see that verse right beforehand? Verse 4, and we took all his cities at that time. There was not a city that we did not take from them. Sixty cities, the whole region of Argob, the kingdom of Og and Bashan. So the two big issues the first time around have been, have been addressed. The big guys can be dealt with, and so can the big walls around the big cities. And it's not just a one-time thing, like God for a single battle destroyed them. No, it's 60 cities, 60, all with impressive fortifications to defend them. That's not bad for a migrant army with enemies all around them. Rather, it should, we should rather say it's pretty easy for the Lord God Almighty. So overall, Moses is trying to lay to rest anxieties and faithlessness. 60 times they fought against massive, six, massive cities. 60 times they won. Their ancestors beat the Rephaim like drums, right? They beat the Anakim like drums with the Lord's help hundreds of years prior. The people need to remember not just God's faithfulness through the, throughout the ages, but his faithfulness to them in particular. They needed to see with their own eyes that the Lord was with them. And he was with them in the distant past, and he is with them in their present, and he will always be with them in the future. And so Moses knows that they have God. And so he's communicating the same message that we get from Paul, the Apostle Paul in Romans 8.31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So what about us? How does God's faithfulness to the people of Israel thousands of years ago matter to us? We don't have Amorites to conquer and we don't have a land to take possession of. So how do we see the gospel through Deuteronomy and how does this change us? You see, as with every scripture, everything in this passage points to the gospel. While this, the people were sinners in the wilderness, faithless cowards, unwilling to trust the Lord, who was with them? Well, the Lord. 
Look at all the ways that the Lord spoke to them of his presence with them in spite of their sin, which is grace incarnate. He was there every day in the pillar of cloud or fire. He was there providing them both food and water every day. Way back in verse 7 of chapter 2 at the beginning of our passage, God said that even as they wandered the desert, they lacked nothing. Can you imagine that? Wandering 40 years in the desert and lacking nothing, even though there's nothing there to get, right? It's not lush. There's no grape. There's no vineyards. There's no farms, nothing. All of it comes from the Lord and he meets every single one of their needs. Do you see the mundane and faithful grace given day by day over 40 years to sinners? And then the testimony of God's authority in the, pow- in the history of Edom, Moab, and Ammon speaks to his power to accomplish his purposes despite earthly odds. And finally, the conquest of the land east of the Jordan and the beginning of the prophesied destruction of the Amorites for their wickedness point to the Lord's enduring faithfulness to his promises, no matter how long ago they were given, and his desire to speak directly to the issues of his people's hearts. Remember, what... what weakness did the people show? They showed fear of the Anakim and of these high-walled cities. And so the Lord spoke directly to those fears by overcoming the Anakim and the high-walled cities. God knows exactly what they need to hear to encourage trust in Him. You see, when we talk about how this points us to the gospel, I often talk about the gospel being three things with with the students, with us, you know, in, in sermons and stuff like that. And so what are those three, three things? Well, Jesus' death, his resurrection, and our union with him. But that's simply core theology. It's a place to start. But the, God, the gospel embodies so much more because Jesus is so much more than just those three doctrines. And that's the wonder of that third part of our, of our union with him. We don't simply get doctrines of substitutionary atonement and resurrection and of union. We get him. We get Jesus, a full-bodied person. And the point of the Christian life is not to be better at keeping rules or exhibiting the fruits of the Spirit or obedience or whatever. The point of the Christian life is to be conformed to the image of his Son. We want to be more like Jesus. And we get to be more like Jesus. Why? Because Jesus stood where the Israelites did, with an impossible task before him, overcoming sin and death. And he did, as Moses does now, to look upon God's handiwork, to look upon the character of God, and to cast himself into the sure and loving grip of the Father. What do you think he was doing at the Garden of Gethsemane but that? Jesus trusted the Lord to the end so that we might have the same access to the Father, that we too might finally live in obedience to our chief end, that we would give God glory and that we would enjoy Him, that we would be God's people through and through, not only obedient, but wholly dependent upon Him, not only for our provisions and need as the Israelites were, but for our very selves that our very identity, everything about who we are, would be conformed and dependent upon God. Friends, this is how the church has dealt with great issues throughout the ages, by depending on the Lord, by trusting in Him, by trying to embody Christ in every way possible. 
The same issues that we face today of polarization and division because of race, because of socioeconomic status, because of political belief or whatever. You name a million reasons, a million issues, we're divided because of it. Those issues have plagued the church throughout the ages. Think about the early church. Think about the deep-seated and comprehensive divisions between the Jews and the Gentiles. Anything and everything they could possibly disagree about, they did. But suddenly, they are thrust together because they are now brothers in the faith. They disagreed about just about everything, and yet they remained as one. Do you think that the church had divisions over how to handle the Black Death in the 1300s when a full third of Europe's population died over a five-year period? That's 20 million people. You bet people were fearful and others were not. And yet the church flourished in that period. And so for us in uncertain times when arguments seem to spring up about anything and everything, we too have a difficult task ahead of us to remain united in Christ, to look upon each other and to embody Christ. But as we look back as Moses has done to see the Lord's handiwork throughout the ages, we can see Jesus leading the way, doing that which we couldn't even imagine. But the Lord isn't simply content to give us a history lesson, but he wants us to see what it's like to be with him, to trust in him for everything. So think back over the pandemic over the last two years. Have you seen pictures of grace? Have you watched yourself exhibit Christ by trusting God as you give grace to those who you think don't deserve it? That's grace. That embodies Christ. You're exhibiting Christ. You're growing in Him. You're doing what the Israelites are called to do, to, to step forward in faith that the Lord would do something great. Let me tell you that the pastors and your elders have been in the crossfire throughout the pandemic with both sides of a myriad of issues voicing their opinions and disagreements with various church policies. We're simultaneously doing too much and not enough. And yet the vast majority of you have worked hard to stay united to the church, to remain in fellowship with us despite our disagreements. And that shows Christ, that shows faithfulness. That shows the kind of faith the Lord is after from the Israelites on the banks of the Jordan, to step into that which is both uncomfortable and difficult. Why? For grace's sake. That you're here this morning watching this video and committed to the church is evidence that the Lord is with you and with the church, working to sanctify it and all of its members. In a lot of ways, we're like the Israelites, finding ourselves in the mundane waiting of the wilderness, marching ever toward that great day when the Lord Jesus will do something mighty and return. And each day we find ourselves called to remember what the Lord has done, what he is doing in our midst in small ways, not necessarily great ways, but small ways. And, and what he will do, that we might be with him. And know that in Christ, he has already won the day. He is yours and you are his through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now we can step boldly into this crooked and sinful and sick world. Why? Because we have him. Because he's on our side and no matter what, 
there is nothing that can stand against us. And so therefore, we can step into the hard conversations, the awkward conversations, the, the hard relationships. Why? Because we've already won. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. That means you and me through grace in Christ Jesus. So let's take heart that even though we're not where we would like to be together in person at Harper Park worshiping on, a, on Sunday, right now, but Jesus is with us always to the end of the age. And so what can anybody do against us? For we have him. Let's pray. Father God, what a joy it is to know that you are with us. Lord, thank you for the picture of uh, your goodness and your faithfulness to your people throughout the distant past and that you wanted them to get firsthand experience of what it was like to live in your hand. Lord, we sit in uh, difficult times, uh, uncomfortable times. And Lord, we ask that you remind us of your cross, that distant past, that um, sure uh, evidence that you love us, that you are changing us, that you're committed to us. And would you also open our eyes to the recent past, that you would open our eyes to all the ways in which we are made new in you, in, way, in which we get to embody you in the here and now. Lord, keep us one. Give us victory in this impossible, hard, difficult task that can only be accomplished through you, that we might remain one in this divisive uh, time. Lord, bless our morning. Bless this worship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.